This podcast is brought to you by BMJ Best Practice. BMJ Best Practice offers evidence-based, continually updated and practical knowledge that will help you make better clinical decisions. Hello and welcome to this BMJ Best Practice podcast on palliative care. Kieran Walsh is my name. I'm clinical director at BMJ. Palliative care is specialised medical care for people with serious illness that focuses on best quality of life for both patient and family. It is a broad-based activity and so impossible to cover all of it in a short podcast. So we're going to focus on a few key symptoms, pain, shortness of breath and constipation. And to give us the latest on management of these symptoms, we have on the line Dr. Oliver Minton, who is Macmillan Consultant and Honorary Senior Lecturer in Palliative Medicine at Brighton and Sussex University Hospital. And importantly, Ollie is author of our BMJ Best Practice topic on this condition. So Ollie, you're welcome. Let's start off by asking you to tell us what are the core principles of pain management in palliative care? Thank you. So I think most importantly is not to be afraid of using opioids, strong opioids, so morphine or equivalent drugs early on, um, providing there are no obvious contraindications um, such as significant kidney impairment. I would use modified release morphine for most patients first line and the evidence would support this and patients will thank you for it. Thank you. And I I guess that leads on to a a, a direct question about patients with kidney impairment. What would you use in those circumstances? Everyone will differ, but my cutoff is about an EGFR of 30. I would switch to oxycodone. Some patients don't tolerate morphine. I always warn them about the usual side effects of drowsiness, possible hallucinations, Oxycodone is my first line alternative and is generally very well tolerated where morphine isn't. Okay, thank you. And to go from the specific to to the general, tell us about recent advances in uh, pain management in palliative care. I think there's been a, a wider recognition of the role of, as I say, using opioids early um, and often, but also in conjunction with other agents such as um, anticonvulsants, namely sort of pregabalin or anti, uh, tricyclics with amitriptyline, but also with using local anaesthetic, either topically through patches or through a, a local pain service and using your anaesthetic colleagues. Um, this will vary depending on where you are, but I think the usefulness of using those sort of that expertise is really helpful. Okay, thank you. And and the drugs like pregabalin, um, under what circumstances might you use those drugs? I tend to use them if there's obvious uh, neuropathic pain or symptoms related to neuropathic pain, um, burning or stabbing sort of pains. Patients will be very clear. They're telling you this doesn't respond to opioids or doesn't respond very well. Um, And again, using those drugs alongside opioids I don't usually use them in isolation I use them alongside again they have the similar side effect profile of drowsiness uh, and potentially uh, clouding somebody's cognition so you have to warn people but aside from some of the controversies outside of palliative care when they use well in in our field for, for a limited period of time when somebody doesn't have very long to live necessarily 
that they are generally well tolerated and good drugs to use. Tell us about pitfalls in pain management. What are the the main pitfalls that you see? I think some of the bad press that opioids obviously get because they are all all our drugs are drugs of potential abuse. So people are rightly frightened, but used sensibly and prescribed correctly, they are as safe as any other drug that people prescribe. So I think the obvious pitfall is that people don't feel able to use these drugs early enough. They will stay with weak opioids, codeine and tramadol that personally I think have a much worse side effect profile. And they don't tend to use or titrate sufficient modified release strong opioids early on. Okay, thank you. And and what route of administration would you typically give in in the case of opioids? Wherever possible uh, is by mouth and by the clock. Um, So that no matter one thing to take away is no matter what dose of drugs you give, if you if you're only ever giving a short acting drug, it will only ever last you four to six hours. So always try and start people on modified release wherever possible. Um, and unless they can't swallow and there's no alternative enteral route, such for a peg or something, then the, the other route we use is a syringe driver. Um, but that's very much in reserve for somebody who's either dying or who's being sick or obstructed. Okay, thank you. And, and uh, it used to be the case that you were advised to start um, preventive anti-constipation uh, medication along with opioids. Is that still the case? Very much so. Um, that That is a persistent problem. Um, and again, it's poorly recognised as how sensitive people are. I know we're going to talk about that, but it, it's it's really important to prescribe laxatives. Less so an antiemetic, although I do warn people and do give them the option, but, but laxatives are essential. And, and uh, what laxatives are, are best for preventing opioid-induced um, constipation? Generally, some people have more problems than others. I'd, again, start simply with some Senna, possibly some Movacol. Some people don't tolerate those drugs at all well. Uh, I think we've, we've, we're, again, reluctant to use targeted treatments, which is something I've started to use a lot more, the uh, peripherally acting um inhibitors such as naloxagol um, actually work very well and are very well tolerated and I've started to use those more once first-line laxatives have failed. Okay thank you and and what would be your first-line anti-emetic um, if, if one was needed? If one's needed I tend to, again to keep it simple and use metoclopramide unless it's a obvious contraindication because generally speaking you're only using it for 24-48 hours at most. Okay, because then tolerance develops, is that yes, correct? Exactly. To, to, to tolerance to the the nausea. Yes, yes, yes. You know, is and and generally it's not a problem. Yeah, but but you wouldn't give metoclopramide as, as preventive therapy routinely. Not routinely, no, no. Okay, thank you. That's that's really really very clear. Why don't we move on to constipation generally? Um, tell us about the core principles of management of constipation. If you're talking to a geriatrician, it would always be constipation is is a multifactorial problem. In my world, it's almost invariably the opioids, and it's recognising that people on opioids get constipated universally, and that for some people, that's 
a significant problem and uh, potentially leads to obstruction, even perforation. So it's really important to treat. You have to co-prescribe a laxative, but equally, I don't start, I, my practice has changed. I don't now prescribe two or three laxatives, expect them all to work together. I, I prescribe a, a, a peripherally acting targeted drug. Like I use naloxagol. There are others. There will be more on the market. But my experience and, and the, is that those are much more effective. It's a once a day tablet and it's generally much more effective than people trying to take sachets of Movicol. Okay, thank you. And um, tell us more about that drug that you mention is it new uh, what are the side effects profile um it, it's a relatively new drug it's been around for a couple of years now like everything it's not widely used or adopted because while senna will cost you a couple of pence this is the order of a couple of pounds but the impact of somebody with uncontrolled constipation and their quality of life is significant and may even end up I've seen it more sadly too often require hospital admission. So it's a significant problem. Um, it generally is very well tolerated. Like anything that affects um, your gut, it can go the other way and people can complain of cramps and diarrhea and you can't use it if somebody's obstructed. But other than that, I found over the last year of use, it's very well tolerated as a once day drug that people take alongside their painkillers and it doesn't affect their pain control in any way. Thank you. That's that's helpful. And what about pitfalls in the management of constipation? What are the common pitfalls? Sometimes it's blaming the opioids when people who are who have a reduced oral intake are in bed or frail, uh, are naturally prone to constipation. Not asking about it and not asking in detail. It's not just simply enough to ask when somebody's bowels were last open. It's important to talk about consistency where they had to strain whether there's any bleeding, things that indicate that somebody is is insufficiently opening their bowels or it's not incomplete evacuation because of the non-specific effects it can have. Certainly, as you get older, the, the likelihood of getting confused is a cause of confusion or delirium. Um, and it's something that just shouldn't be missed because it's so easy to routinely treat. And it avoids the need, which most patients don't like, of rectal intervention. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Let's move on to uh, our, our, our third and, and last uh, symptom, which is shortness of breath. Tell us about the, the principles of management of shortness of breath. So I think within a within a palliative care setting, it's 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 one of those symptoms that's very distressing, potentially, uh, and again, responds very well to opioids, both as a symptomatic treatment for somebody who's who's mobile and say, um, pulmonary disease chronic obstructive pulmonary disease but also at the end of somebody's life when breathlessness for an overwhelming pneumonia or septicemia uh, and in recent times covid can cause significant high respiratory rates so i'm very conscious when you talk about breathlessness that you're very clear that you're treating things symptomatically and uh, you have excluded obvious underlying causes but i again i'm quite liberal with low dose and stress to low dose opioid use okay thank you and are there any recent advances in the management of uh, shortness of breath not not especially i think it's recognizing that that there are pharmacological and non-pharmacological uses uh, treatments um and that but the evidence is always very mixed some people get benefit from handheld fans some 
um, from just physiotherapy exercises and some from drugs and some from a combination. What I tend to be more liberal about, again, because I'm not a respiratory consultant, is the, is the use of oxygen as a, palli- as a palliative measure, even when somebody isn't hypoxic. How do you know what dose of oxygen to give? I think that's that's part of the problem is that I tend to then not look at SATs but ask somebody to use a visual analogue scale and numerical rating scale um, again to start low. And I think one of the things we've we've been very bad at in recent times is is not reducing oxygen uh, nearing the end of somebody's life when actually the principle is about airflow um, much less than than the amount of oxygen that they're being given. Okay, thank you. And um, lastly, on on shortness of breath, pitfalls in management of shortness of breath. What would you say they might be? I think it, it's it's holding on to the old adage that opioids cause respiratory depression. Um, again, that is not something that that I've seen using low dose oral opioids. Has the evidence is very clear. There is no suggestion that there was any respiratory depression clearly that's different if you're if you have inadvertently taken too much or you've got opioids accumulating but generally speaking they're very well tolerated drugs even even when there are other reversible causes to be dealt with opioids can be used alongside okay thank you very much ollie that that's really helpful and and very clear and thanks to all for listening we hope that this has been helpful and we hope you'll be able to put what you've learned into action to better diagnose and manage affected patients. If you want to find out more, click the link in the podcast to sign into BMJ Best Practice and look at the content on this and other diseases. Thank you once again.